I'm Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, October 21st, 2023. Halloween! So coming up, no Halloween would be complete without aliens. Today our guest is astrophysicist and astrobiologist Dr. Adam Frank, and we talk about the little book of aliens. We hear some of the stories and learn about the science of life out there, astrobiology, and the past, present, and future search for extraterrestrial intelligence. We begin with some spooky headlines in science. Halloween is the time of year when people share scary stories about treats gathered door-to-door that contain horrible things. However, razor blades and apples and poison lace candy are mostly urban myths. Only a handful of candy tampering cases have ever been documented, and they're usually traced back to a deranged murder plot targeting a single person. What has just been documented as more deadly to children in recent years has been something seemingly bland. The deadlier thing is soybean fields in South America. The biggest grower of soybeans in the world is now Brazil, which has also become the world's leading user of pesticides. It turns out that soy and pesticides often go hand in hand. In regions near the Amazon, soybean crops have been rapidly replacing the grazing of cattle on grassy fields. Soybean growers use a lot of pesticides, and in Brazil they don't get a lot of training in how to do that. The University of Denver contributed to the new report, published yesterday in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. It indicates that childhood leukemia deaths in the Amazon region where soybeans are growing have increased. These deaths coincide with evidence of more toxic chemicals in the blood and urine of people who live in communities around the soybean fields. The authors of this new soybean study point out that they zeroed in on a specific cancer and on children to give an indication to the risks of the communities in Brazil where the soybeans are growing. They warn that other illnesses throughout the population are probably happening at greater rates due to the way that soybeans are growing in the Amazon. They urge greater education for soybean workers in the proper application of the many pesticides used to grow soybeans today. For How on Earth and Happy Halloween, I'm Shelley Schlender. Hissing black cats, an iconic aspect of the supernatural. But these aren't the only faces cats make. In a new study, researchers identified 276 facial expressions cats use to communicate. The majority were either distinctly friendly, 45%, or distinctly aggressive, 37%. What's more, our feline friends may have evolved this range of sneers, smiles, and grimaces over the course of their 10,000-year history with us. Each expression combined about four of 26 unique facial movements, including parted lips, jaw drops, dilated or constricted pupils, blinks and half blinks, pulled lip corners, nose licks, protracted or retracted whiskers, and or various ear positions. By comparison, 
Humans have 44 unique facial movements, although researchers are still working out how many different expressions they combine into. Dogs have 27 facial movements, but again, their total number of expressions isn't known. What exactly the felines were saying to one another with these expressions remains unclear, but overall, cats tend to move their ears and whiskers toward another cat during friendly interactions and to move them away during unfriendly interactions. Although the researchers haven't looked at the facial expressions of related felines, which are solitary animals, they may use defensive or aggressive displays. Our domestic cats probably developed friendly facial expressions as they gathered to await humans' dinner leftovers. Interestingly, some of the cats' friendly expressions resemble those made by people, dogs, monkeys, and other animals, hinting that these species may share a common play face. When you're out tonight, beware of cats whose faces signal aggression. But if you're looking to adopt then the friendly face may indicate a cat more likely to get along with an existing pet. This study was published earlier this month in Behavioral Processes. For KGNU and How on Earth, I'm Beth Bennett. I'm Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Halloween is a good time to think of all things strange, and probably on the top of anyone's list of things that make you go, hmm, are aliens and UFOs. To help us through the extraterrestrial quagmire and find out what science there is in the search for life in the universe, our guest is Dr. Adam Frank from the Department of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Rochester and a CU Boulder undergraduate alumnus. His guidebook for our journey is called The Little Book of Aliens. It is indeed a, a nice, readable little book. It has eight chapters covering the history, science, pop culture, and current and possible future research in trying to answer the question, are we alone? The first half covers the background of past searches, UFOs, and yes, he tackles the UFO question head-on, and some digestible physics. The second half of the book mostly focuses on what are we doing now and planning for later to search for life elsewhere in the universe. Welcome to How on Earth, Adam. Great pleasure to be here. Thank you. It's great to have you. Like I said, I, I really enjoyed reading this book. It, I found it's written in a very conversational, accessible style. And I was curious, what do you think are the, the roadblocks and the best ways around them to communicate science, particularly about things like aliens and life out there? 
Uh, yes, that's a really great question. And, you know, I wrote the book because after 30 years of being an astrophysicist and, and studying everything from how stars form to, to now astrobiology, I wanted to give people a way of understanding how close we were as scientists, how close science is to having real data about this question of life in the universe. Um, so a lot of the problem, of course, is because people associate discussions of life in the universe with UFOs and UAPs. But science itself, the, using telescopes, you know, looking at, at alien planets where aliens are going to live, whether they're smart aliens, the kind, the kind that build civilizations, or um, dumb aliens, the kind that, uh, you know, are just microbes, science is, we're, we're, we're going to have data in the next few decades. And I really wanted people to understand how close we're getting to answer this ancient, ancient human question. Well, it certainly is important to plan for the data that you hope to get. But still, you know, it can be dicey, I should say, at the least, for a scientist who wants to study, for example, UFOs. You even point out in your book that uh, Giordano Bruno was burned at the stake for claiming that the sun was the center of the solar system, stars were other suns, with other planets and life on them. So how can a scientist, let's say a respectable scientist, study them without risking, if not their life, at least their reputation or their sanity dealing with UFO culture? Yeah, well, the amazing thing, and I talk about this in the book, is what we call the giggle factor. And for a long time, any scientific discussion of life in the universe, whether you were interested in microbes or, you know, the possibility of actual civilizations, faced this giggle factor, which was a result, really, of UFO culture with its penchant for conspiracy theories and hoaxes, um, as well as uh, Hollywood movies, right? We've had, you know, 50 years of bad, uh, bad science fiction movies mm -hmm. with aliens in them. But the remarkable thing is that that is really gone. The giggle factor is over. Uh, and now the, you know, if you want to know how much the giggle factor is gone, the next space, the next large space telescope, the next, what will replace the James Webb Space Telescope, you know, a multi-billion dollar instrument right now is called the Habitable world observatory it is going to be a telescope dedicated to finding life in the universe so it's no longer among scientists it's no longer kind of on the periphery because of the amazing advances in science we've discovered planets are everywhere in the galaxy every star in the sky hosts planets and we've discovered how to look in the atmospheres of those uh, distant alien worlds for life so it's it's really a scientific practice now so they're really one doesn't have to feel if one is interested in life in the universe, like you're taking your career. In fact, <laughs> you know, I, I would say that astrobiology is one of the most potent, best choices for a young scientist right now. I'm glad to hear that and that things have changed. But what exactly has changed since since you and I were kids watching Chariots of the Gods and going, ooh, they're aliens, and then finding out that was bogus and going, oh, bummer. I know. What really has made it more respectable among scientists. What were those changes? You, you talk about new ways of thinking how to think about aliens. So what is the change? Yeah, so um, in the little book of aliens, I try to show 
that it's these discoveries. It's We made a bunch of amazing discoveries that took astrobiology from being kind of this pure theoretical, you know, exercise that only a few people on the margins who were interested in were thinking about to suddenly there was work to be done. So the first and most important of those was the discovery of exoplanets. In 1995, we discovered the first planet orbiting another star. And it was entirely possible that there were no planets orbiting other stars. That was it. That was really it. That, that really was the primary revolution. But we also have unpacked the entire history of the Earth in terms of life and the Earth evolving together. Because that showed us that once life forms on a planet, it hijacks the planet and takes it over in ways that you can detect from across many, many light years. And that gave us a technique, what we call atmospheric characterization, where we can look at the atmospheres of distant worlds, look at the light that is passing through the atmosphere from the star, and use that to detect what we call biosignatures or technosignatures, imprints in the light, signatures in the light of the presence of either a biosphere, microbial or forest, or a technosphere, you know, uh, uh, civilizations harvesting energy and, and imprinting and changing the planet. So those two things, those were scientific revolutions that allowed us, and then the new technologies or the telescope technologies that really made it, there was something to do. There was science to do about this, this field. And so you're saying it's been accepted that there is a real foundational, legitimate scientific approach that scientists can take to answer these questions. Was that driven by culture? Was that driven by technology? Now that we have James Webb or even HST, Hubble Space Telescope helped in that direction. Yeah, it was it was driven by first and primary, like every major advance in science, it's driven by technology, right? When you can do an experiment that you couldn't do before, suddenly a whole new kinds of questions can be posed and can be answered. Like this is the whole history of science, quantum mechanics in the turn of the century. All that craziness happened because we had technology to look on atomic scales. The ability to see Alien atmospheres, see into alien atmospheres, was because of the development of telescope technologies. So first and foremost, it was telescope technologies. But then secondly, it was the advent of new theoretical ways of approaching the question of life. And I have a whole, you know, I really talk about this a lot in the book so people can see. We started to think about life in more general terms. We didn't, we, we started to move beyond just thinking about Earth's life as an example. And we started to learn how to become agnostic in our search. So instead of always just looking for what happened on Earth, we can think more generally about what life is and what life does as a general phenomena, and then look for biosignatures and even technosignatures based on that idea. It seems like in your book that also a significant change was when certain scientists, say who were well-respected in other fields, were able to create well posed questions that could be scientifically answerable. For instance, the Fermi paradox and the Drake equation. I know equations over radio might be tricky, but could you kind of lead us through what those are and why they were such a significant change? Yeah, so the fascinating thing about this whole topic of, uh, you know, life or, or of the question, are we alone, is how old it is. People have been arguing over, are we alone, as far as back as the ancient Greeks, you can see Aristotle and uh, Democritus kind of beating each other up over it. 
But the problem always was for 2,500 years, people were yelling at each other over their basically just their opinions, man. You know, there was no there was no way to even begin to formulate it as a scientific question or to be able to do anything with scientifically with the question. And then the fifth, I talk a lot about the incredible decade, 1950 to 1960, because so much foundational work was done then. At the beginning of the 1950s, uh, Enrico Fermi, it's a very interesting story, which I won't go into now, how he poses this question, but he was the one who realized, he asked the question, where are they? If life in the universe is common, and intelligent life in the universe is common, then why have it? He saw very quickly the calculation in his head that they wouldn't take very long in terms of the age of the galaxy to pretty much hop from one star system to the other and settle and colonize everywhere. So that was the first time. So that was a question actually you could try and work out. Well, how fast would they go? How long would a civilization last? So that was the first inkling of a scientific problem you could work on. But then, most importantly, in 1960, Drake, Frank Drake, came up with the Drake Equation, which was really just an agenda for a meeting he'd been asked to call. Frank Drake was, of course, the first person to ever do an astrobiology experiment. He actually used a radio telescope to look for signals of an intelligent species somewhere in the galaxy. So he had, they were, he was asked to call, have this meeting on interstellar communications, and to, to formulate the meeting, the agenda, he came up with this equation that broke the problem up, right? The problem was how many is, civilizations are there in the galaxy? Which is like, okay, how do you even answer that question? He was able to break the question up into seven subparts that if you knew the answer to all the subparts, you could answer the question how many civilizations there were. And, for example, some of the subparts were, well, how many stars are there? Uh, how many planets are there orbiting stars? How many planets are in the right place for life to form? And so on and so forth. And so Drake Equation in particular gave us a research program. You know, Study each one of these problems individually, and you'll eventually work your way to it. And what's amazing is, the last 20 years, we've answered the first three of those subproblems. We now know how, we certainly know how many stars, they, they knew that, but we now know how many planets there are and how many planets there are in the right place for life to form. So that was really, you know, if you want, even, even if you're interested in UFOs, you've got to know about Fermi and you've got to know about Drake because that sort of is how we established how to think about the problem. Are we alone? Well, if you just joined us and wondered what that was all about, you are listening to How on Earth, the KJ News Science Show. I'm Joel Parker, and my guest is Dr. Adam Frank, author of The Little Book of Aliens. And if you are a new or renewing KJNU member, you're invited to come to the station Monday through Wednesday from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. to browse for thank you gifts, including copies of this little book of aliens. Okay, I, I had I had reason for that little musical <laughs> interlude there, and Adam's <laughs> laughing. So, Adam, you you mentioned in your book that mathematical laws are as beautiful as the opening bars of John Coltrane's "A Love Supreme" or Led Zeppelin's "Heartbreaker." Um, you and I might have to agree to disagree on which Led Zeppelin song to pick. Also, makes me wonder what music aliens <laughs> might listen to. <laughs> 
can you explain? Coltrane and Zeppelin, there's no doubt. Coltrane and Zeppelin. Jazz or rock. Maybe maybe they're classic rock, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. (laughs) Can you explain why you feel the laws of mathematics and physics are so beautiful and how that applies to the search for extraterrestrial life? Yeah, in the book, that in that section of the book, what I was trying to explain to people was how, even from a distance, even from 40 light years away, we can still figure stuff out about distant stars or, or distant alien planets. And we do that using the laws of physics, the laws of physics that we know hold here and that we know hold there, because we can see the, the same... Uh, spectral lines, the same chemo- uh, uh, spectral fingerprint the, the, in, in light, the, the fingerprint from burning sodium here looks the same as it does there. We see the exact same laws operating. We see the exact same uh, um, uh, uh, signatures of, of different kinds of processes. So that's the beauty of it is that what's happening in the alien atmosphere, you know, the presence of oxygen, which we think is a signature of a biosphere. The presence of, say, chlorofluorocarbons, which we think would be a signature of technology. We can use these laws of physics to to sort of sniff out what's happening on alien worlds. And I think those mathematical laws, you know, I'm literally just about to go teach my students some of them. uh, They're just they're so gossamer. They're so beautiful. They're so it's like a poem. You can express so much in just a few lines, which is exactly, you know, that the opening of Heartbreaker there, you know, that guitar riff is just so incredible. So that, that's my, that, that's what I, I have that emotional <laughs> response to music and I have that emotional response to math. That makes sense. Not only are they beautiful, we trust that the laws apply throughout the universe. That is a good basis for studying math and physics. So I'm, I'm going to divert here because we need to grab that elephant in the room by the tusks or uh, woolly mammoth, as you mentioned, <laughs> with the ice worlds and the ice earth. Right. First, let me ask you, UAP or UFO? Oh, I'm fine with using UAP. Okay. You know, the unidentified aerial phenomena. The government rebranded it. That's okay with me. So what is your view about all the current discussion of UAPs? And is it helping or hurting the search for evidence of aliens? Well, I think, so the first thing I have to say is as a scientist, I am skeptical. Everybody should be skeptical. Uh, And I will say, you know, absolutely there is no evidence, there is no hard evidence of the kind that I'm going to have to produce if I say I found alien life on an alien world. There is no hard evidence that links anything with UAPs or UFOs to life beyond Earth. There just isn't. But having said that, look, if people want to have, enough people are interested in it, uh, that having a agnostic, transparent investigation of UAPs, I think would be a good idea. And I talk about what actually that would look like. If you really wanted to do that, have an open scientific investigation of UAPs, what it would actually look like. So I have a whole chapter on that in the book. And so it would be because it would be a master class in how science is done, right? How do you actually, how does science know anything? How does science build this amazing cell phone I'm talking to you with? And then let's let it go where it's going to lead. You know, the point of an investigation like that would not be to prove that UAPs are alien spaceships. That you don't want to jump. You know, the idea here is not to prove your favorite hypothesis. Your idea here is to have an agnostic search and follow it 
where it goes. Right. So I think everybody needs to be super skeptical about it because there just is not that kind of hard data that we use for everything else in science. U- UAPs and UFOs don't get a pass because we're talking about aliens. So um, I doubt at this point, uh, but I'll let the science, you know, if the science led in the other direction, that's the where we go. But I doubt that UAP, we're not going to find aliens by looking in our skies. We're going to find evidence of life in the universe by looking at alien planets, which is, after all, where aliens live, right? (laughs) And it's a good point. Just because something's unexplainable, you don't just jump to the conclusion that it's aliens. I have one more question. Sorry to squeeze a huge question in our last 30 seconds here. (laughs) Um, So I would call myself an alien optimist, as you kind of described in the book. But allow me a pessimist question. Why bother? Why spend the time, money, people's professional careers, etc., if aliens might be so distant in time and space, and the physics so cruel we can't go faster than light, that we will never be able to communicate with them? I mean, is simply knowing something exists enough? Uh, it's interesting. I have a um, op-ed in the L.A. Times on exactly this question today. So if you want to see the expanded answer, they didn't go to the L.A. Times. But the short answer is, you know, life is unlike any other physical system. Only life invents, only life creates, only life innovates. Um, And knowing that we are not an accident, that life on Earth is not an accident, will tell us something really profound about our place in the universe and what our potential future is. So I think it's really, it's the most, important scientific question that we've ever asked, just like the Copernican revolution, where we found out that uh, the sun was the center of the solar system, not the earth, right? Nothing changed, right? It wasn't like anybody, you know, the sun still appeared to come up in the morning. We just learned that it was actually the horizon going down. But, you know, the Copernican revolution was, you could, is implicated in the, the enlightenment, in the Renaissance, in the Protestant Reformation, Ideas, particularly astronomical ideas, resonate. And so this question, if we find that there's life, it will reshape how humanity thinks of itself in the universe. Well, thank you very much for being on our show, Adam. It was a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. My guest was Dr. Adam Frank, author of The Little Book of Aliens. We discussed the question and science behind the search for extraterrestrial life. We only just scratched the surface of this book. If you want to learn more, you can walk, run, or warp drive to your local bookstore or online at adamfrankscience.com. And that is the alien edition of How on Earth. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced and engineered by Joel Parker. Additional contributions by Shelley Schlender and Beth Bennett. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from John Coltrane and Led Zeppelin. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and X. Questions or comments? Call the KJNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker.